Our scripture today, are we at the scripture now? Is that where we're at? Yeah, that's where we're at. Okay. Uh, comes to us from two sections of scripture from the Old and New Testaments. Uh, the first from Jeremiah chapter 32. Hear the word of God. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of King Zedekiah of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, at that time the army of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and the prophet Jeremiah was confined in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah, where King Zedekiah of Judah had confined him. Zedekiah had said, why do you prophesy and say, thus says the Lord, I'm going to give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. King Zedekiah of Judah shall not escape out of the hands of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hands of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye, and he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I attend to him, says the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of your uncle Shelem, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then my cousin Hanamel came to me in the court of the guard, in accordance with the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out the silver to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the silver on scales. And then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, son of Messiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. In their presence I charged Baruch, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar in order that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. And then from Paul's letter to the Romans, the fifth chapter. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions, knowing that affliction produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray, O Lord, that you will allow these words to come to point to the word just read and the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. 
Yah Hasha and Yah Wenki are two friends who live in a rural area of a northern province of China, the name of which I cannot pronounce. My Chinese has gotten a little rusty. They have been friends since childhood, and they became friends in childhood largely because in childhood both were victims of devastating accidents that left both of them with lifelong disabilities. Yah Hasha was blinded in both eyes, and Yah Wenki lost both of his arms. One not able to see, the other not able to grasp. They live in a part of the world where little attention is paid to the environment and the effects of industrialization and mining, so the beauty and wonder of their childhood was turning more and more into a wasteland, as were these two men. The disabilities of these men made it very difficult to find paying jobs, and over the years they found themselves languishing until one of them one day got the idea that maybe the two of them together could do something that might make a difference. And then one of them got the idea that maybe the two of them together could figure out how together they could plant trees. Trees are the great air purifiers. More trees, perhaps better the air. They weren't going to change state policy, but they could plant trees. Yet how does a blind man and an armless man plant trees. Easy. Yah Wenki said, you will be my arms. And Yah Hasha said, you will be my eyes. They found a way to shimmy the blind one up a tree so that he could feel for branches at the direction of his armless friend from which by feel he could cut off cuttings that they would then plant in the ground. Their picture is in the front of your bulletin. The first year they tried this, they planted 800 cuttings, and out of the 800 cuttings, two survived. Not a great return on investment. So they realized they had an irrigation problem, so instead of giving up, they figured out a way to get water to the cuttings, and the next year, most of what they planted survived. So they kept planting. They kept planting as many plantings as a blind man and an armless man can do together. Last count, they had planted well over 10,000 trees. They had, in essence, planted a forest. The skies don't look any less gray. The rivers don't look any less murky. But they believe someday it will be different and they hope that their forest will have played a part. As far as I can tell, these two friends are not religious people. They are not inspired by any divine consciousness. They just figured out that there was something they could do together that would give meaning to their lives and make the world a better place. Maybe what they have is something called hope. In our lesson this morning from the Hebrew Scriptures, we learned about the prophet Jeremiah who finds himself in a pretty hopeless situation. The Babylonian Empire, under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, is marching across the globe and gobbling up all the little kingdoms and provinces in its way and trying for, what lots of autocrats try for, world domination. 
The, the kingdom of Judah is but a speck on the map of these Babylonians, and now they have arrived at the walls of Jerusalem, the Judean capital, and they are prepared to lay siege, and they are prepared to take a majority of its residents as prisoners, and they are prepared to exile these prisoners back to Babylon, including the king. The world is coming to not such a good thing. Rip them from their homeland, force them to live as strangers, exiles in a foreign land. Things are pretty hopeless. Jerusalem will lay in rubble likely for generations, which is exactly how it turned out. But then we read Jeremiah saying that the word of the Lord has come to him and the word of the Lord has told him to buy some land. Buy some land in Jerusalem. Jerusalem that will be turned into a wasteland. Troops will march in. People and property will be raped and pillaged. An earthquake of geopolitics will destroy everything that Jerusalem ever was. Nevertheless, Jeremiah, buy some land. Get yourself a nice little parcel, maybe even with a view. Even though the view will soon be of the city laid waste. Not the kind of real estate advice any of us are looking for not to mention acting upon. But Jeremiah hears it and acts on it. He buys the land. He buys the land because, as he says, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Talk about buying low and hoping someday to sell high. But, but notice something. Jeremiah is not buying this land for himself. This isn't some retirement home that he hopes to move into someday. This isn't some real estate investment that he hopes will serve as a nest egg for his golden years. Jeremiah will not see golden years. So that's not what he's concerned about. He's concerned about the generations to come and his hope that for, the, that for them, the world will be a better place. Jeremiah is banking on God's desire and hope that the world for generations to come will be a better place. And Jeremiah is going to participate in that hope. Jeremiah is going to put down a down payment. Jeremiah is going to buy some land and plant some trees. In Oxford, England, they tell the story partly apocryphal, I suspect, of the founding of New College. There is more than one New College in this world. Founding of New College back in the 14th century. That's a, a conflict of terms, right? New College began in the 14th century. New College, when it was constructed, had at its centerpiece this great dining hall that was built with massive oaks beams above, holding up the ceiling and the slate roof. Beams two feet square and 40 feet long, built to, shall we say, last a while. Well, sure enough, 100 years ago, some curious entomologists got up into the rafters and poked at the beams and discovered that they were filled with beetles, which is something evidently that occurs when wood gets to the end of its life. The entomologist reported his findings to the council and said that now that the ceiling and roof were, were vulnerable, and the council then breathlessly wondered, what in heaven's name were we gonna, are we going to do to replace these beams? Where could you get such fine wood that was 500 years old 
It was decided to seek out the college forester to see what recommendations he might have. And when they did, the forester replied, oh, we've been wondering when you'd come along to ask. What do you mean, they asked? Oh, he said, when they built New College 500 years ago, they realized a day would come a few centuries down the road that those beams would get beetly. So they planted a grove of oak trees that would mature over the centuries to be able to replace the beams that would someday go bad. Generation to generation of Oxford foresters would pass down the edict, don't let them cut down those oaks, them's for the new college dining hall. Who builds a building thinking it will be around five centuries later? And who plants a grove of trees to make sure that that building lasts another 500 years? Those that have hope, I suppose. When the Apostle Paul writes to the Romans, this little house church in Rome, He's writing to a small group of the early followers of Jesus, and they're meeting in the shadows of the Roman Colosseum, where some of them have already been thrown to the lions. Nero has used them as, as a scapegoat of, for the great fire in Rome that destroyed part of the city. Their mere assembly puts them at risk of death, not to mention their worship. Expedience and self-survival would serve as great temptations to shut down the whole project, these early Christians like why should we do this? What is it worth? And to these folks, Paul writes these curious words. We boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts. Hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts. To these suffering Romans, Paul says, hope and love go together. Your hope is born out of your love. You live a life of hope when you live a life of love. Your hope is in love itself. Your love for God, your love for neighbor, your love for the world, when you love, you hope. When you love, you participate in hope for the world. When you love, you do not allow the circumstances of the world to dim your hope. Václav Havel grew up in Czechoslovakia and like most young people sought to find his little niche in the world which for him turned out to be the theater. He was drawn to the theater and pursued stage design and then acting and then writing and then finally producing plays. But then kind of like those Babylonians of long ago, the Soviet empire descended upon his country and invaded it and subsumed it as a Soviet satellite and in turn stripped its citizens of the rights and freedoms to which they had become accustomed. Out of love for his fellow citizens, Havel turned his theater craft into an instrument of hopeful dissidence, writing plays and producing plays that spoke against the hostile regime. This, in turn, got him thrown into jail several times, some of the sentences lasting years. Havel turned to writing underground essays, some of them smuggled out of prison, to foment activism against the oppressors. They, they served as seminal documents in what came to be called the Velvet Revolution. 
Upon the collapse of the Soviet regime and the return of freedom to his people, the Czech Republic eventually elected him as president. At some point along the way, Havel was asked about this hope, this hope that turned him into a dissident, and he said this, it's actually, the quote is on the cover of your bulletin. It's so long that I want you to be able to take it home and read it again. Havel wrote, this kind of hope, I often, the kind of hope I often think about, especially in situations that are particularly hopeless, such as prison, I understand above all as a state of mind and not a state of the world. Either we have hope within us or we don't. It is a dimension of the soul. It's not essentially dependent on some particular observation of the world or estimate of the situation. Hope is not prognostication. It is an orientation of the spirit, an orientation of the heart. It transcends the world that is immediately experienced and is anchored somewhere beyond its horizons. Hope in this deep and powerful sense is not the same as joy that things are going well or willingness to invest in enterprises that are obviously headed for early success, but rather hope is an ability to work for something because it is good, not just because it stands a chance to succeed. The apostle would put it this way, hope is an ability to work for something because it is love, not because it stands a chance to succeed. Two brothers love the world enough to plant 10,000 trees. Jeremiah loves God and God's people enough to buy a piece of land. The foresters love Oxford enough to plant trees under which, they are the under which shade they will never sit. Havel loves his fellow citizens enough to sit in a prison cell. And those Christians, those early followers of Jesus, they believe enough about love that they actually do it, even if it means the lions tomorrow. When you love, you hope when you love, you participate in hope for the sake of the world. When you love, you do not allow the circumstances of the world to dim your hope. I've been a pastor long enough to walk with hundreds of parents who were raising children who were not necessarily becoming model citizens parents who, because they love their children, would do all they could to help them, even though they were met over and over again with disappointment and frustration, bad behavior, poor grades, drugs, alcohol, run-ins with the law. There is nothing more heartbreaking than watching your kid become his own worst enemy. But for the most part, not always, these parents kept hoping for a better day, for a turnaround in their child. And they hoped, why? Because they loved. Despite the circumstances, despite the poor track record, despite the bad choices, they hoped because they loved. And their hope sometimes changed the world for their child. Sometimes, when I'm watching the news, or scrolling through my Twitter feed, always a bad idea. Or reading some article that someone sent me, or listening to some sky is falling podcast. I start to wonder, what is the world coming to? Are things getting worse? Are, are, are we reaching the point of no return? Is there really no hope for tomorrow? 
It doesn't take much, really, to get you thinking that way. But when I was growing up, it also felt like the world was falling apart. The Vietnam War was raging. Tens of thousands of American boys were coming back in flag-draped caskets. National leaders were being assassinated. A president resigned in scandal. Detroit, outside of which I lived, was burning in riots. My suburban town would not accept people of color. Inflation climbed at 12%, and there were, during my childhood, at least four recessions. What was the world coming to? If I had hope back then, it was likely because I watched my pastor father get up and go to work every day, sometimes to preach the gospel, sometimes to act the gospel, sometimes to visit the sick, sometimes to bury fallen soldiers, sometimes to welcome people of color into our town, sometimes to be arrested in a civil rights march, sometimes to walk with parents whose kids were off the rails, and sometimes to harbor those kids in our home, and always, always, always proclaiming the love of Jesus. So today, when I wonder what the world is coming to, I pray for that moment or those moments to come to me as a follower of Jesus, when I realize that my hope is not in the past, my hope is not in the future. My hope is not in some chicken little running around telling me the sky's about to fall. My hope is in the one who poured his love into me. My hope is in the one who seeks to pour his love not just into me, but through me. And this love is my hope. This love is the hope for the world. And when this love becomes my hope, it is then that I buy some land and plant some trees.